Care Some Price for Monday, January 29th, 2024. Coming to you from the Go Goat Sports Studio, built by Arbor Lee here at the iconic Wall Center, downtown Vancouver. And if you're thinking of coming downtown or making it a special Valentine's Day, call the wall 604 331 1000. Make an evening of it in downtown Vancouver. Matt Sikaris alongside Blake Price, Grady Sassett, and Switches conducting things with intern Lachlan Irvin. we got a big show coming up. That's brought to you by Applewood Auto Group. Applewood Mitsubishi in Richmond is home of the Mitsubishi Outlander. You can get that in a uh, in a hybrid form, which well, I love because you have. I, uh, I filled up for the first time in two months the other day. Really <laughs> nice. Uh, Mitsubishi Outlander GT, though, is well financed from 4.99%. Plus, you get the industry's best warranty, of course, at Mitsubishi. So check it out right now. Take it for a test drive at the Richmond Auto Mall. It's all good at Apple. Poll question today. We're asking you, is this year's edition of the Canucks better than the 2011 team? Yes or no? You can vote at Sikharsen Price on Twitter and YouTube. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, more on that in a second. Because they are outpacing that team that won the President's Trophy, the first of two, and yeah. made it to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Stanley Cup final. But they erase a three-goal, third-period deficit, come back to beat the Columbus Blue Jackets 5-4 in overtime on Saturday. Brock Besser with three goals, four points. He gets to that magic number 30. More on that coming up. Elise Pedersen with two goals, three points. Game-winning goal number nine, it's tied for the league lead with Sam Reinhardt, West Vancouver's Sam Reinhardt. JT Miller is off to the All-Star game with three assists. Quinn Hughes is off to the All-Star game with three assists. Pius Suter continues to work on that Miller-Besser line with a pair of assists. And we're going to hit some, we're going to go through some of the milestones of these Vancouver Canucks here from Brock Besser and Rick Tockett in a second. But first... Answer me the poll, because right now, Blake, the Vancouver Canucks, 33-11-5, that's 724 hockey. The 2011 team, 54-19-9, that's 713 hockey, 117-point pace. Average team. Uh, we're 117-point. Uh, the current edition is better than that pace, believe it or not. That 2011 team finished with a plus 77 goal differential and this 2024 team is up to plus 59 although they're no longer the highest scoring team in the league the Colorado Avalanche have usurped them just barely 3.84 goals per well, game to scores four times per game so that 3. helps point eight. Yeah. <laughs> yes. the goal look at Nathan McKinnon's game log folks if you want to see just a Mona Lisa the last 25 games of McKinnon's season is ridiculous but, mm -hmm. but back to the Canucks um the only difference I see in these two teams, and there's different, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're, uh, I, 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 I think of teams often the way EA Sports sort of ranks things, you know, offense, defense, and 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 the 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 bars are going to be at different spots in terms of ranking them, but overall, these two teams feel very similar in that them scoring seems inevitable, getting big saves seems seems inevitable. And winning seems inevitable, really, on a nightly basis. The biggest difference right now is that we saw it over 82 games for the 2011 team, and this has been a smaller sample size, to a, a useful sample size. I'm not diminishing that. 
but ultimately it is an 82 game season like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a long grind and being able to do it for 82 games is an achievement in and of itself. Never mind the playoff success, which of course was just one win shy themselves. But the fact that we can actually have a reasonable conversation on that, that's it is, uh, is quite the hat tip for this team. I voted no. I, I think the 2011 team uh, was a little more complete, but it is absolutely extraordinary that we are having this discussion on January 29th after 49 Vancouver Canucks hockey games heading into their bye week and the All-Star break, leading the league. I, I think this team might have a titch more offense while the defense of that 2011 team was a titch more stout. The, the other thing that's coming into focus here, is the one thing we would say about that 2011 team is they didn't need to play three periods. No. Oftentimes they played one period and one. They were just that much better than most everyone they faced. They usually scored first, but if they were down one, nothing mm-hmm. going into the third period, no one was worried. You were right. pretty sure they were going to come away with a win. Now the Vancouver Canucks have not lost a game in regulation since January 4th, 2-1 in St. Louis. They've gone 11 straight here with points. But one thing that we have seen creep into their game a little bit is periods where it's just not happening. Yeah. Or or even games where two periods where it's not necessarily happening. Now, they were very good in the early stages of this hockey game. But then they were down 4-1 after two periods, which brings us to Coach Tockett. And what was his message after 40 minutes? He said we don't have to hit a, hit a home run every shift. I mean, when we got to 2-1, we're looking for home runs instead of just letting the game. That's probably, you know, we're getting better at that. I will tell you that, but it's still something there. We got to be careful. You can't hit home run. Sometimes you just got to let the play happen. Um, and we learned, uh, you know, a valuable lesson with winning, which is great. Um, and now, you know, I mean, we got 71 points. You know, the goal was to get 70 for the road trip. I mean, I, this homestand. So the guys did a hell of a job. And now this 10 days is a, is a big, big thing for the guys. Five-game homestand, they get nine of a possible ten points. And how many times have we heard Rick Tockett this year, Blake, say, well, we learned a lesson, but that's but that's a, within a win, which is a good thing. Yeah. Well, I, I kept on thinking. Because more often than not, you learn the lessons when you lose. And yet this team has been good enough and resourceful enough and resilient enough that they can have bad periods, like Tockett talked about, trying to hit the home runs, everybody pressing a little too, too much, trying to get it all back in one shift. And yet... Sure enough, they're able to channel and in the third period, get back even, force overtime, get the victory while learning the lesson along the way. It's the way, a coach's dream. The way I saw the game unfolding was in the first period after uh, like a not a great outing last time out, they responded to the coach and played well, but they were kind of a little forlorn that they didn't score a couple of goals in the period maybe. And, you know, they were trying to finish up strong. Hey, it's a great first period. Nothing to show for it. Oh, man. And then they get a couple of bad breaks in the second period. They find themselves down 4-1. I thought, all right, whatever. 3-1-1 homestand, not the end of the world. They're, they're, you know, I'm not surprised that they just ran on fumes into the All-Star break. Not surprised. I, I, was ready to, I was ready to concede them and just say, you know what? I get it. I did not expect them to come back in the game. Not because they're not capable of it. Just the circumstance. Last game before the All-Star break, such an unbelievable run of play lately. I thought, you know what? They're human beings. 
they're halfway. They're in Florida they're in already. Florida. They're in wherever. And, and you know what? I was ready to forgive them for it. Mm-hmm. Human condition stuff. Well, and I, and I think that's what may be different about this Vancouver right. Canucks team is that there's a, a, a professionalism, a accountability, a responsibility that goes above and beyond. So, yes, 33-11 and 5, the record for your Vancouver Canucks through the first part. Uh, well, the unofficial first half, of course, yes. is well beyond the first half. But That's the uh, good the news. Is it is well beyond the first yeah, half. No, exactly. 33, 33 left to play here. Okay, Brock Besser, who, as we stated at the beginning of the season, I think if there's one story that all of Canuck Nation, Canucks Twitter, uh, shows like this that cover the Vancouver Canucks could get behind that would be a comeback season for Brock Besser with everything that he has gone through over the years with his father, of course, being ill and ultimately passing away uh, with just in some cases, hard luck injuries like last year at training camp. You may remember this scrum early in the proceedings a year ago, September, when our Jeff Patterson was in conversation about Brock Besser with Brock Besser about season targets when it came to goals. Take a listen. You know, 30 is always a number that's kind of been uh, associated with you. Do you kind of feel like that's the target and, and it's, it's the year. This is the year. That's all I got to say. This is the year. <laughs> it wasn't. This is the year. He was off. Well, he was hours off later, he yeah. got injured in a scrimmage. And uh, alas, wasn't able to get to 30. In fact, only got to 18, 29 from his full rookie season. And even that was compromised with an injury over the final 20. Remained the personal high for Brock Besser until Saturday, where he completes the hat trick and gets to 30. He is tied now for sixth in the National Hockey League in goals. He had had a bit of a slump there, had dipped down the rankings but 30 goals has you tied for six here's Besser on scoring 30. Yeah it means a lot um, it's obviously something that I've wanted to get to for a while so um, to get there is great but um, you know, obviously I couldn't have done it without my teammates and you know how we're playing and how we've created the standard. And how big a milestone was it for Brock? Well he he acknowledged later when asked again that he's still brought he's still processing all this. I don't know if it's hit me yet but um, I think you know, more so just that we won that game. I think that, you know, that's really exciting for me right now. And just the fact that we came back from four to one and going going to break with the, with the high here. He's, he's in the end put together a very nice career. He's been very consistent in the goal scoring column. Mm -hmm. Um, It was seemingly a matter of time. I don't think anybody would have predicted 30 goals in 49 games though. Like if we had told you at the outset, Brock Besser will have a 32-goal season. I think people would have wrapped their heads around that. Yep. But you would have assumed that was in 77 games or something like that. Although there was also a school of thought that the the league was just passing him by. Because the sluggish feet were not going to allow him to keep up, get to those spots, and be that effective goal scorer we saw earlier in his career when the league, let's face it, was not quite as fast, was not quite as skilled as it is now. JT Miller leads the team in points heading into this All-Star game, 67. That is tied for fourth in the National Hockey League. Quinn Hughes leads all defensemen in points as well with 62. That's four better than Kale McCarr. 
Quinn also with 50 assists, that's third in the league behind only Kucherov and McKinnon, and they're just three ahead, and we know what kind of incredible years those two individuals are having. Hughes plus 34, that's best in the National Hockey League. His closest pursuer is his teammate, defense partner, Philip Ronick at plus 33. Thatcher Demko, 26 wins now. That is second in the National. There are a few games left this week. But for the most part, these numbers are going to hold going into All-Star Weekend in Toronto. Uh, Gorgiev with 27 wins is the leader there for goaltenders. Thatcher, a 920 save percentage. It's fifth amongst those with 20-plus games. Seventh amongst those with 10-plus games is 244 goals against average. Tenth in the league amongst those with 10 games. And, of course, five shutouts, which is tied for the league lead. So the Vancouver Canucks are peppering every statistical individual category both team and individual and and um, and the individual ones the, the pauses had me looking sort of at, at these paces of these great core players for the Canucks and what it means for their careers GT Miller just passed the 600 point plateau in his career and we know he's got the the lifetime contract basically with the Canucks going forward is he a thousand point guy like it sort of feels like it's probably doable for him to get to a thousand points isn't it 400 points in the next five seasons maybe something mm. to that effect can you I, do it I, yeah i i mean can I'm certainly not in, no i know it's certainly not an el- inevitable because you're gonna add what we'll 30, see how he ages here add 30 or 40 more points this season right so then he's really down to to 340 points 360 for 360 points over Four yeah. seasons, five seasons. I mean, I think the pace will tail off sure. at some point in there. It's just a matter of whether the next couple of years, if he can, can be, be at ninety-five, if he, yeah. if he can be at ninety-five for a couple more years, it, it it chomps off what he has to do on the other side. Turns thirty-one in March, so yeah, and two then, three more good years gets him in striking range. Put it that way. And then for Elias Pettersson, um, I mean, lo and behold, this is one of the most consistent goal scorers in the league now. And we don't think Mm -hmm. of him as a goal scorer. But he's got 27 and 49. 40's completely in the wheelhouse for Elias Pettersson after he had this huge month of January. And he's already had four seasons of at least 27 goals under his belly. He's coming off of back-to-back 30-goal seasons. So, you know, he's had 163 goals in 374 games. It's a nice start to one's career. Never mind the point totals at 387, above a point per game for his career. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, these are prolific point getters over the last three seasons, not in terms of just the Canucks, but the league. You're going to hear a whole lot going forward here, and I suspect over the All-Star Game weekend in Toronto, about the trade deadline and players who are available. Now, we're going to get into a couple of players who are available in a moment, one of them, of course, is someone we know quite well here in Vancouver and Chris Tanev. But Elliot Friedman talking about Andre Kuzmenko to Chicago today. Yeah. I mean, we've already, we've, we spitballed that uh, for the last few weeks just because they do need somebody. Jason Dickinson can. Well, I mean, some of the reasons, one of the reasons why you're seeing these contract extensions in Chicago, Dickinson, Morazic, Felino, is yeah. they got to get to the salary floor next year and they do have to give Connor Baird something to work with I too of course with Taylor Hall he got hurt 
Like everybody got hurt that they tried to bring in and Corey Perry had to be sent away. So um, that doesn't surprise me. And for, for Chicago's own sake, you know, it's only one year left. So they get out from underneath it. If it doesn't work out for them, if it does work out for them magnificently, when, when they want to be good in a couple of years time, uh, maybe they can resign them and keep them going. Just help me out. Is there anyone on Chicago who the Canucks would fancy, or are we talking about no. just a straight salary dump here? Yeah, maybe a pick. Um, I know at one point we were looking at um, the right shot defenseman there, Connor Murphy. He's hurt too, though, with a modified no trade. And that, of course, uh, was at a time prior to the acquisition of Nikita Zadorov. So I'm not sure you're necessarily searching for that level, that salaried uh, defenseman anymore, particularly with finite cap space and the need for another top six forward. Frank Saravelli did a sensational piece looking at Chris Tanoff as trade deadline candidate. It was very much in the same vein as the piece that he did on Sean Monaghan last week that we went over uh, a deep dive, looking at the player, looking at the interested parties, and then most importantly, and I think most interestingly, the trade history of profiles of defensemen that look like Chris Tanev. So first, just the review, and Frank talking, I'm sure, to scouts here, he still remains an elite shot blocker. He moves the puck quickly. This is not a guy who wants to spend too much time with the puck on his stick, so that still tracks. Very few turnovers from Chris Tanev. And, you know, the knock on him is that he has not been available. The durability hasn't been there. He's played 93% of the games for the Calgary Flames. Now, the worry would be he misses the important ones, either down the stretch or in the Stanley There's Cup no playoffs. That. I mean, it's hard to forecast yeah. that, although, you know, with a guy who puts it on the line as often as Chris Tanev done, I suppose you can forecast it. A little more. He once was most expert in avoiding penalties and not quite at that level. And Frank points out that, look, uh, his jam isn't necessarily defending the rush as much as it is defending the the half court. Um, But a second or third pair somewhere in their defenseman on a great team, he might just be a third pair at this point, a shutdown guy, a matchup guy. Uh, the teams that are interested, according to Frank, Dallas, Florida, the Islanders, Pittsburgh, Tampa, Toronto, Vancouver. I saw Elliot threw Ottawa in there on the weekend with the Senators who have forever been searching for right shot defensemen and want to sell Tanoff on being a veteran defensive-minded guy for a good young team that has terrific left shot. But that's a summertime pitch. But that, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, of course, Tanoff is a rental. He's going into the... Uh, uh, summer as a UFA and you know, not the youngest guy anymore. That's either. the thing. Like what, what, what can you ask if you're the flames? What can you ask for a 34 year old with a, with an injury reputation, mm-hmm. even if it may not be fair. Well, two years ago, Mark Giordano was 38. Right. Now granted Norris trophy guy That's that right. Tanif has never reached. That's right. It was Mark Giordano with the Seattle Kraken retaining 50% of the salary and Colin Blackwell, a utility forward, bottom six forward, went for two second-round picks and a third-round pick. The retention's big, though. Again, two years ago, Brett Kulak from Montreal to Edmonton, 50% retained for a second-round pick 
a seventh round pick and a hope bet prospect. Again, two years ago, Josh Manson, 50% retained for Manaheim to Colorado for Drew Hellison, B-level prospect, and a second-round pick. So there you go. Second-round pick plus, in some cases, plus, plus. That's with if retention. Second, that's with 50% retention. Well, of course, the Canucks are going to need some retention. Like, well, I mean, not if they trade Kuzmenko. Uh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. But in a world where Chris... Yes. Uh, Chris Tanev's $4.5 million salary is coming on over without anything previously having gone out, then yes, you're going to need retention or you're going to move, need to move back some salary. So there you go. It's a second-round pick, a second asset, and if that second asset is pretty far down the line, then maybe it's a third asset as well. The, the tough part is, of course, that the Canucks don't have a second-rounder this year, so is Calgary as interested in having to wait for a second-round pick the following year, or is that exactly the price that you get back from Chicago for Kuzmenko? Is mm -hmm. it Kuzmenko for a second, and you immediately flip that second to the Calgary Flames as part of a Chris Tanev deal? We have seen that once already. Which, uh, you know, the and the Flames are going to ask the Canucks for the most because trading in division and helping them out, even though, again, it's a rental player, so it's unlikely to come back and haunt them. Maybe Tanev resigns with the Canucks, but maybe not. Um, can see a variety of situations there. Uh, you know, Tanev, of course, doesn't upset the apple cart, too. There's a lot of chemistry with, you know, a handful of players still here from the Tanev years. So, you know, as people try to, you know, guard against breaking up the juggernaut Canucks here this season, I don't think, uh, I don't think Tanev's too big a, an incursion, All, albeit somebody on the blue line is upset about it. Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, your captain has already gone to management saying, <clears throat> like this guy, he'd be a fit. And of course, once upon a time played. Alongside Chris Tanev. One of Susie Zadorov or Cole is likely not super pleased. If they go down the Tanev route. And yeah. again, we perceive them to be hunting a top six forward first and foremost. But you got to be able to make that trade. Mm -hmm. And it is smokescreen season, of course. But also, it's also not the end of the world in terms of a price tag. Like it's not like you're you're packaging up a top prospect in a first round pick for Chris Tanev. Like no, that's a doable trade. Yep, like absolutely. Like my God, Jim Benning traded second round picks away. Like, yep, like there were coupons for the grocery store. Second and Bristavich. That's a little rich for my blood. I wouldn't go there for Tanev. It's a little rich, mm -hmm. but I mean, second and EPD. Yeah, second and. Danila Klimovich. Well, maybe that, somebody that likes one you do in a, that one you do for sure. Second um, Natu Ratu. I think I do, I do that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elise Lindholm in Calgary, of course, one of the deadline prizes here as well. A top two centerman. There's not a lot of those. And someone who we also have heard the Vancouver Canucks are interested in, and he fits the bill as that top six forward. Athletic did a piece today where they look at Lindholm from the point of view of the Winnipeg Jets and what it would take the Jets to acquire this player. And we think he'll be amongst the most expensive players traded, uh, certainly amongst the rental UFA to B players. Blake, uh, they thought it might take Mason Appleton, who's turned into a middle six winger 
for the Jets, 23 points, 47 games, right at a half point a game, playing 16-plus minutes a night, 28 years old. And Chaz Lucius, who's a first-round pick, 18th overall from the 2021 draft, an American forward who was at the University of Minnesota, made his way to the Portland Winterhawks of the WHL, has also played in the AHL, has been hurt somewhat, but has 18 points in 29 career and AHL games as a guy who won't be 21 years old until May, a right shooter as well. So two pretty significant pieces there. If that's in the ballpark of what it's going to cost to land Elias Lindholm. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, we, we talked about the Tanev deal not being, I don't see the Tanev deal as expensive really at all based on some of the comparables and given the age and all that. I mean, that's a bigger deal. This one is more expensive. That's for a sure. bigger deal. That one makes you gulp. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. And I'm not even sure what that deal is for the Canucks. Canucks side of things. Yeah. Like, is that McCaff and Lecromacki? Something like that. I think the only way you possibly go down that road if you're the Canucks is if you feel like there's any interest. He doesn't have to mm-hmm. sign an extension yet, but. Is there interest in Lindholm yeah. for as staying a Vancouver Canuck after the right. years through? Because Appleton's a pretty cost-effective player too. He's under contract next year at two point one million, two point one six. Yeah, before hitting USA uh, UFA status. So, yeah, um, just we're giving you some information there to ponder as you sit here between now and March eighth, going where should the Canucks improve? what players can fit that bill and what is it likely going to cost your team, the Canucks to make those, to make those deals happen. Moving on to football. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of comebacks. Real shout out Cam and Chuck and Dennis and everyone at the Pemby. We had a great time yesterday watching both games. I, I want to, <laughs> Let's start with the AFC game for a moment before we get into Dan Campbell and fourth down. An incredible graphic yesterday from Adam Schefter and the ESPN team. Mahomes is 72 and 22 in the regular season in his first six years. Tom Brady was two games worse than that, 70 and 24. Mahomes is 14 and three in the playoffs. Brady is 12 and two. Of course, we've expanded the playoffs a little. Four AFC titles for Mahomes, three for Tom Brady. Three Super Bowl rings for Brady, two for Mahomes. Of course, he'll have a chance to win a third. Uh, Touchdown to interception ratio is, in fact, not close. Mahomes with 90 more touchdowns than Brady through the air. Remember, when Tom first came on the scene, he wasn't exactly a throw the ball all over the yard, big numbers type of guy. And the quarterback rating also in Patrick Mahomes' favorite. Like, is it possible, Blake, that we're seeing uh, one goat? Like, when when Brady got to six championships and then to seven in Tampa Bay, I said, forget about it. Close the book. That's that. Yeah, this is this is Novak Djokovic. Yeah. Just being like, just really, saying, okay, you, Federer, you, Nadal, here yeah. I am. Do you like those records, Roger? Mm-hmm. You've got them for a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm going to erase all of them. Now, the biggest difference, I, honestly, I think – I think uh, Mahomes may have raised the floor. His floors might be above Brady's floor, sort of like, you know. Well, I think he's got more natural talent than Tom Brady. Yeah, 
But does he have the will to win? Does he have the will to do it for as long as Tom did? And you need the help of an organization too. Right. The, well, he's got a good you. one. He's got a good one. And, and they, hey, they've been great. But should he have one more ring than he has? Based on all that playoff well, success? I mean, of course, the one he lost was to Tom Brady. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, he's got a lot of work to do to get to fill up oh, those fingers. You know, no question. So, but it's just astounding. It is that. It's crazy. You know, your first six years as a starting quarterback, you're sitting right there, if not leading the GOAT in certain metrics. And, of course, with a chance to tie him in the most important category of them all, Super Bowl rings, championships. Kansas City runs the ball 32 times to Baltimore 16. And there were only crazy. three early down runs from Ravens running backs in this game. What were they thinking? That's astonishing. What were they thinking? Like, you cannot get outrushed if you're the Baltimore Ravens in this game. Kansas City throws two more passes, so they ran 18 more plays than Baltimore did. And, of course, they weren't besieged by dumb, dumb penalties like the Ravens committed. Eight for 95 as opposed to three for 30, and so many of those 15-yard penalties, and needless penalties, like Zay Flowers, who has him a really difficult game. The two fumbles are huge here. The third down conversion, Baltimore three of 11, Kansas city, eight of 18 and Lamar 20 of 37. And if you had doubts and I had some going into the game that Lamar Jackson had completely fixed himself in terms of being a guy who could sit in the pocket, throw it to the proper guy accurately downfield well those doubts were proven true that interception into triple coverage in the end zone i just have zero explanation for if you're trying to win super bowls and beat guys like patrick mahomes you can't come close to making a throw like that also like use your legs if, if like if you've if there's well, good coverage. early i mean they they were threatening him early and he had 54 yards on eight carries as it is like if, if there's no options use the legs did he beat your uh, prop over on the rushing yeah what was it again is it 59 or 39 i think it might have been 39 okay we'll have to look at that for um yeah tuesday's program the other thing proven was that travis kelsey's distracted big day for him he's the the one guy who had a big day receiving 11 targets 11 catches 116 yards and the touchdown yeah um you know that was small ball by the chiefs by their own metrics right and they still made it work. One of the worries I had about Baltimore going into this game is if you're going to play zone defense against that level of quarterback, Mahomes, then you need to be able to do one of two things. Either disguise the coverages enough so you can confuse them, perhaps get some turnovers, or at the very least get some ineffective plays, or pressure him and get him to the point where his timing is off, where he doesn't have the ability to sit there and read where the ball needs to go. Those things didn't happen Yeah, for the Ravens. And credit, credit to the Chiefs defense, too. We talk about Mahomes and Kelsey and uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. Look at the Chiefs defense, too. I um, just, uh, I think if you're Baltimore, though, and and absolutely, uh, I mean, Kansas City deserves a lion's share of credit, but take a look at, at, at what you were facing here if you were Baltimore. The Kansas City offensive tackles have been weak spots for a while. Their all-pro guard, Joe Thune, was, wasn't able to go, pectoral injury. Their linebacker spy, Willie Gay, the guy who was supposed to spy Lamar Jackson, 
was hurt and didn't play in this football game. Baltimore had virtually every consequential piece healthy, including the tight end, Mark Andrews, and it still wasn't enough. And, you know, to just talking with people yesterday as we were taking all this in, look at how much a great quarterback now covers up in the NFL. Remember when we'd look at the teams that Brady would roll into Super Bowl with and go, oh, I don't know, they got some protection issues. They're not that great in coverage. Receivers don't really scare you. Didn't matter. Quarterback was so good. And that would be actually my one worry for the NFL going forward. That if the quarterback's weight got even more pronounced in terms of winning, that if you could no longer win a Super Bowl with great defense and a running game and a B-level quarterback. I, I, I do wonder, like, are we getting to a point where it's Champions League uh, sorry, where it's Premier League, where there's like five or six teams at the top who've got a chance to win, and in the NFL's case, because you have the great quarterback. And if you don't, you're playing for something short. Well, does having, does having fewer great quarterbacks make that less likely or more or more likely? Because there's fewer great quarterbacks now. Oh, uh, unquestionably. So, you- And again, there's been a drain on incredible careers and talents at this position here that we've sat down and watched over the last two plus decades in the case of your Brady's, your Manning's, your Breeze's, Roethlisberger's, all credentialed guys who have left the league uh, over the last half. Well, on that note, let's go to two, I think flawed quarterbacks in Goff and and Purdy. Um, And I I don't know. Are are you fixated on the call? Because I am not. So um, I kick a field goal too. I, I understand Dan Campbell and aggressiveness and identity. I also understand that the analytics would tell you in a benign environment, you go for that fourth down instead of kicking the field goal. I would like to know what the analytics say about forging a 17 point lead for a second time. Right. Um, I, I would suspect there are very few teams in the annals that have faced a 17 point deficit coming out of halftime, cut into that deficit then face that deficit or greater again and come back and won it a second time. There were some terrific writing. First of all, it's only the fourth time in the history of the, of the National Football League playoffs where a team that has trailed by 17 points at halftime goes on to win the game. Uh, the uh, Patriots beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. of course, 28-3. you got to go back to that incredible 93, uh, forget divisional or wildcard game where the Bills raced the 35-3 to deficit and came back and beat Warren Moon and the Houston Oilers. And there was a game in the in the 50s, and believe it or not, with the 49ers and the Lions for a 17-point game at the half. If it's a tie but, game, you, you absolutely go for it. You got nothing to lose. It's a, it's a tie game, or it's not, a, or you have a you have a lead going into the half. There's there's no doubt about it. If it's a tie game, you go for it on fourth down. But you, your field goal still makes it a three possession game. Well, and that's huge. And, and so you're thinking forty five yard field goal. You got a pretty good chance of making that. You know, you're seventy five percent above on that kick. Uh, and then you turn it into a situation where San Francisco needs to score three more times with about 22 minutes or so to play. If you feel like you're a good team at all, you think you can hold on to a 17-point lead 
through half a football game. Dan Campbell, I don't regret those decisions, and that's hard. It's hard because we didn't come through. It wasn't able to work out, but I don't. Uh, and I understand the scrutiny, meaning regrets. I'll, I'll get, I understand the scrutiny I'll get. That's part of the gig, man, a very mature way to handle it if you're Dan Campbell. Mike Florio and pro football talk, and I loved this, Blake. Coaches should be strategic, not aggressive. He talked about how analytics and aggressive are now being used synonymously, and that's not the case. Sometimes sound strategy considerations point to being willfully aggressive. Sometimes they point to being deliberately passive. And he makes the point that when you go up three scores at that point, at that stage in the game, you're probably going to one-dimensionalize the San Francisco 49ers. They're not going to be able to rely on the running game as often, not not to mention the fact that you put the fear of God in them. There's an anxiety at that point knowing they pretty much have to be perfect the rest of the way. So, look, um, I, I will put this in your pipe over the next two weeks super bowl 54 featuring these exact two teams the 49ers effectively had the game one until a quarterback we didn't really think was championship worthy jimmy garoppolo started turning the football over and they and kansas city won 31 mm-hmm. 20 blake hilarious because 2008 2008 or 2007 the um new england patriots the undefeated season they go into that super bowl against the long shot new york giants they get upset the undefeated season is no more and then four years later they lose i don't say a carbon copy game but a very similar game to the New York Giants where they can't solve the defensive front that the Giants threw at them and lose a second Super Bowl to a common opponent. I sort of had a flash of that this morning. Is San Francisco going to go in this game and lose it again because the quarterback can't keep up and make enough plays and makes too many mistakes? Different teams. We'll see how this goes. But as I sit here right now and I eye it up, boy, how do you pick against Patrick Mahomes in this game after whom he has beat over the last couple If you're not weeks. getting points, if you're just trying to pick the winner, I don't know how you don't pick the Chiefs. I mean, I don't know how. <laughs> all right. Let's get into our, first of all, our schedule this week with the Vancouver Canucks off. We're taking a few days off as well. Tuesday through Thursday, we'll be off. We'll be back on Friday to talk about everything all-star game. If there's breaking news, if there is breaking news, of course, if the Canucks swing a trade, we will be at it with an emergency program. Let's get to today's menu. It's going to feature Frank Corrado, who's going to join us. Uh, Plenty to talk about with Frank. We'll get to some hashtags, the best and worst of Twitter. J-Pat and some Whitecaps news on the pod side, all coming up. And the show menu today is brought to you by Greta on Cordova in Vancouver. A great spot to stop by. Before the game, if you've got tickets, during the game, if you don't, and of course, after the game, if you have tickets as well, it's in a great location, walking distance to the arena. And then, uh, hey, 
the games have just begun at that point. Great arcade games from yesteryear to keep you entertained and a fabulous menu. Uh, it's always fresh, never frozen at Greta. So go check them out on Cordova in Vancouver. It's Greta Arcade Bar and Street Food. Harrison Price in this segment presented by Seagram's VO, Select Canadian Whiskey. Originally introduced back in the early 1900s, Seagram's VO, designed as a wedding gift from Joseph E. Seagram for his son. Barrels were set aside in a warehouse specifically marked VO, the family's very own whiskey. Joseph E. Seagram liked it so much, he put it out on the market. The rest was history. Seagram's VO, Select Canadian Whiskey, artfully blended and impeccably crafted, Make it your very own, and the Nation Network of Podcasts will be live from the Seagram's VO Whiskey Studio at Sponsorship X in partnership with the 2024 NHL All-Star Game, February 1st and 2nd. Seagram's VO Select currently available in select BC liquor stores, so visit Seagram's VO Select to purchase or find your nearest liquor store. With TSN hockey analyst and former Vancouver Canuck Frank Corrado and Frank, as we head into All-Star Week, I'm here to tell you your Vancouver Canucks are first in the National Hockey League with 71 points. Their points percentage, of course, also now tops in the National Hockey League tied with Boston. Their goal differential has been best since the jump. That blowout win against Edmonton plus 59, 14 better than the next best club. I'm just shaking my head in disbelief at what this Canucks team has done this year. Like how they've I, done it. Yeah. And how they've done yes. it. When I hit you with all of that, what comes to mind? I had the question posed to me today. Um, what's the best Canadian team story in the NHL? And it's obviously the Vancouver Canucks. There's, you know, but it's the best story in the NHL, not just the Canadian teams. It is the best story. I think coming into the season, if everything were to go well for the Canucks, given the, the division they're in, uh, you know, having to go up against Vegas, LA, Edmonton, and the dysfunction that has followed this team around for the last, I don't know, the better part of a decade. If everything were to go well, and they were here sitting in a wild card position, I think a lot of fans and the team would be thrilled at that. But for them to not only be ahead of that, but to be seven points ahead of the uh, Stanley Cup defending Vegas Golden Knights heading into the All-Star break is super impressive. It's just, and and you're right, the way they've done it hasn't been just one thing. Like, if you go deeper, the Canucks are the best stories, but the stories within the Canucks is really, really incredible. Like, Quinn Hughes pushing up on Kale McCarr for the best defenseman in the NHL this year. Like, Kale McCarr was in a category of his own. And a lot of people will probably still tell you they'll take Kale McCarr, but Quinn Hughes is right there, nipping at his heels. And then take it up front. Like JT Miller, his, you know, his ability to kind of relish this defensive role and take that on and uh, show a little more away from the puck. Pedersen going back and trying to go back to back 100 point seasons and probably will be able to do it. Brock Besser with his big bounce back here. By the way, I was thinking about this watching the game Saturday. Did we not have a talk 
it, it was over the summer or it was last year where we were talking about Besser and I don't want to pump my own tires. You know, I don't like doing that, but I'm gonna, I said that would be my candidate to have a big bounce back year this year. And he did, but that's, that's, that's more on him. Uh, not my evaluation skills anyways. And Thatcher Demko, like Thatcher Demko early in the season, like he, he kind of had to weather a lot of games where there was a lot of grade a scoring chances before they were really able to shore things up defensively. So there's just, there's so many amazing storylines within the group. And that's led to the the group being the best story in the NHL. Is, is chemistry a, a real thing? Um, and the reason I'm asking about chemistry is we know all these players, like the, the core has played together before for a couple of years, a few years, in fact, um, Everybody knows who Teddy Bluger is. Um, you know, he's not a new player in the league. Sam Lafferty's a known quantity. Like, all these players have histories. There's a, there's a few young bucks that are developing, like Nils Hoaglander would be put into that group. Even Pew Suter. We know who Pew Suter is. Why is it working? Is that just team chemistry? Is it team health? What To what do we attribute the fact that this Canucks team can – be a 70 point team, 80 point team one year and be a hundred and maybe 110 point team. The next, the health thing is so underrated, but so important. Your team is so different. If you don't have the health of a couple individuals that, that really help kind of propel your team. And like, sometimes we try and over evaluate and analyze things. And the fact of the matter is some guys just aren't available. And some guys are available, but they're banged up and they're hurt and they're not playing to their 100% capability. So that's a massive thing. That's huge in the NHL. Um, But the other thing about chemistry, as a player, I always felt like there were certain players that you felt more comfortable on the ice with on on any given time. And yes, a lot of times it's like, hey, if I was, you know, if I was ever playing with Dan Hamhuis or Alex Edler, I was like, awesome. You know, like they're, they're great players. But there's just something to be said about the kind of instincts that go with playing with some players over the other. And sometimes it just clicks. It feels like, you know, you guys read off each other a little better. The communication seems like it's a little more free flowing. You don't feel like there's any kind of roadblocks as far as how you communicate and how you do things together on the ice. When you have that, it's like lightning in a bottle, man. You, you, you feel like, okay, I don't want, I, I don't want to see anyone else. Like I want to do, we're doing our job. Everyone else has to find this and, 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 you know, we'll, we'll be in a good place. So there's something to be said for that. But when we evaluate, like I find when we evaluate, if we just say so-and-so has good chemistry together, I don't think we're getting the full picture. Like what is that chemistry? Like what's making that happen? So, you know, in, in the case of the Canucks, like, I don't know, the third line, like they're, they're tenacious, they're physical, they're not afraid to make a play. Like those are the things that are leading to us seeing that, that chemistry on full display. And even the Hughes and Heronic pair, like their ability to really push the puck up the ice. They don't spend that much time in their own zone. What they do on the blue line in the offensive zone, the way they read off each other, like that is, those are the things that lead to us seeing uh, the chemistry. And I think there's a lot of, uh, like a big portion of this group that has found that. There are a few players that haven't, right? Like Kuzmenko still hasn't kind of, he hasn't found his groove yet. But when it's only a, a small portion that, that hasn't found that chemistry, chances are your team's playing pretty well. Poll question today. 
Is this year's edition better than the 2010-2011 team, which Oof. won the President's Trophy? No. I love that Not there that yet, team. huh? Mm-hmm. I'm not there. Like, I, lo- I loved that team. I thought that team had – like, they have that magic kind of pixie dust. Um, and not that this team doesn't because they're – they're just, you know, they're they're humming along doing their thing. But there was just something about the way that team played and the way they were built. They were so, like, forward-thinking at the time compared to what the league was was doing and, and trying to play. And I'm not there that this team is better than that yeah. team yet. Um, that team played at a 713 pace. This one's at a 724 pace, so it is on pace. It's, yeah. Uh, to sure. exceed 117 points. We shall see where it goes. I from. was always surprised when that team lost. Yeah. Well, like it always no, just but here's the Frank, we, we've been talking about this uh, a, a little more uh, readily here because that team could play one period and win a hockey game. And as much as Rick Tockett might be loath to hear this, we are now starting to see a Canucks team that can play a period and win a hockey game, yeah, which I know is a habit. little bit scary. No, I know yeah. it isn't. It's not a great habit, but it's also a symbol of excellence, right? When you don't need to play a well, full if it's, 16 If it's loss mitigation, like in the case of the Columbus Blue Jackets, if it's a, holy crap, well, this was a this was headed for a loss and we've pulled this one out of the loss pile and put it in the win, then, then it's a good thing. You just don't want it to be the backbone of your team. I guess. It's like, it's like, it's something that's hard to quantify, but teams that just find a way to win, you know, it's like just good teams just find a way. And there's always this, this factor where, you're playing against certain teams that really have that going on. And you either you go into their building or they come into your building and you're like, man, we outplayed them. We outchanced them. We outshot them. And they still found a way to win the game. Like good teams just find a way to do that. And you go back, look at the list of, of Stanley cup champions over the years. I feel like Tampa, like Tampa was always doing that to teams. I saw it all the time here when they would play the Leafs where Leafs are playing great. All of a sudden, Tampa gets a couple power play opportunities, and bang, bang. It's like, game over. See you later. Or they had their one chance, and it was they, they made the most of it. Like, the Canucks have that, and one of the best attributes you could say about a team is that they could win so many different types of games, styles of games. Like, I see that right now with the Florida Panthers in the East. Like, Florida can – you talk about – and I think – I can't remember where I said this, but you talk about versatile players all the time and how effective they are, right? They are a versatile team. And I think the Canucks have shades of that as well, where, you know, they could be down in the game, they could have the big comeback and, and win the game. They could dominate the game from start to finish, although they they haven't been great in the second period lately, although they get off to great starts in the first period, and you think that's going to be the case. Um, they can win tight games. They can win that, that you know, free-flowing kind of track meet game, which is not recommended uh, more than you have to. But that's like, that's the indication of a team that has that factor where it's like they just know how to win hockey games and, and like you don't get to be the best team in the NHL in the standings um, if you don't have that. You mentioned all the stories within the story that is the Vancouver Canucks. Is Besser the best? And not just because you called it as a comeback, but just because so many people can get behind it. It's it's the best story, for sure. And you you just think about everything that the guy's been through. And, you know, the fact that if the team could have found a... I mean, I don't know for certain, but it seems like if the team could have found a way to move on 
at certain points they they, they likely would have mm-hmm. and for him to still be here 30 goals by the all-star break like already you know he set a career high and it he it looks different for him like the the goal he scores in in the second period you know we've talked about this a lot on 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 Saturday with Besser where you know you see those first three strides where he beats the defenseman to the to the back post there like that's kind of that's been a little bit of a difference maker for for Besser and he's obviously put in the work to to achieve that and get there so um, it's it's such a great story because you know like you you knew the skill set was there you knew the ability was there hockey and sports in general it's such a mental thing and there can be so many struggles that can weigh you down and you know I think some we also need to remember there's a human element to a lot of this stuff and for him to have the success he's having this year just goes to show you that when you have a clear head um, and you're in a good space you have the skill, you have the ability, you put it all together. And like, we kind of knew what the other guys were, right? Like as much as Hughes pushing up on McCarr is a great story. Pedersen potentially going back to back hundred point seasons. Demko's always been great. Like those are all great stories, but this is the one that goes from, you know, rock bottom to the penthouse, the quickest. And it's, uh, it's really cool to see. The uh, crowd helped. They get a second assist on, on the win. Um, do you remember that feeling? Do you remember that feeling of a of a crowd building you up and putting air under the wings? Because I don't think it's any question that that really helped the Canucks on, on yeah. Saturday night. The the biggest place I remember that is actually in, in Utica when we were going to the, the the finals, the the Calder Cup finals. That crowd was crazy. Like I heard a story, and I didn't see this with my own eyes, but I heard a story, and it was written somewhere that. There was a gentleman in the crowd with the with a prosthetic leg, and anytime we scored a goal, he would pour his beer into the prosthetic and chug the beer, oh. and like that's that's how crazy this crowd was. And you could like you could really get there. There were times where we we were maybe a little sleepy, and you know we were a really good team that year. But some nights you just don't have it. That crowd they would initiate. Um, a lot of the energy in the building and you could really get behind it. I always loved the crowds in Vancouver. Like I always thought they were, they were great. Like, you know, uh, someone would have a really good penalty kill, go down there, chew up, you know, 10, 15 seconds, put some pressure on the D and everyone's clapping. You know, people are like cheering on the, not every, you know, not every building in the NHL um, does that. And the game operations do a great job of like cueing the fans. That's one thing I noticed when, when I came to watch the game against the stars um, earlier in the season on a Saturday night, like the game ops do a good job of they'll flash, like go Canucks go on. And then everyone's going like, everyone's very attentive to it, uh, which is great. But one of like, one of my favorite moments um, with the crowd in Vancouver, and I'll never forget this feeling as long as I live is coming out for game one of the playoffs and I had literally like two years before watched the Canucks playoff run from start to finish and was like, um, so like mesmerized by it. It was so cool. And then to walk out onto the ice with the lights going and the, the, the towels waving and the fans going nuts to where the streets have no name is like top three hockey moments, most surreal things I've ever experienced. And when the Canucks are in the playoffs this year, where the streets have no name has to be coming back. Has I sure to. hope so. Yeah. Has to. Yeah. Um, 
all-star weekend all-star game have you ever heard of a guy getting confidence from being in that select group and getting to participate or is it more nuisance than confidence builder no i've never heard i've never heard anyone saying that's a confidence builder and i don't know if it's a nuisance for everyone like i i think no it's a it's a nice first time guys for sure soak it all in right it's a great like listen at the end of the day it's a great honor to be considered an all-star in the nhl and that's something you're always going to have attached to your name so i think that's really cool and like they they do a great job of, of making sure that everyone gets to enjoy the weekend not only for themselves but whoever they bring whether it's the wife girlfriend family all that kind of stuff so you know that's that part's really cool it'll be interesting though with the all-star game this year i don't know how you guys feel about it but do you care that the player in the skills competition is going to win a million dollars? Like, I, I don't really care. Like these guys no. all make a lot of money anyways. Maybe I kind of think the players who are participating in the skills competition might be more inclined to just not be the guy who finishes last. So mm-hmm. that's why they'll try a little bit more because you don't want to be the last place finisher on that. Are we um, worried about last picks and feelings uh, during the draft part here, or does the presence of the celebrity sort of smooth that one over? I don't know. Someone's got to get picked last. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, you know, it's the nature of it. It's the all-star game. These guys are all, you know, some of the best players in the league, although there's some, you know, there's some notable omissions because you have to have a player from every single team. But, Mm -hmm. like, I think it's up to the way they do it. Mm -hmm to that would deter the whole hey we're laughing at the guy who got picked last the guy's at the all-star game like Mm. i don't know someone's gonna have to get picked last as long as they they don't make it like this whole running joke and bit and and gag thing um it's it's whatever you make of the situation right i vote for castle he was cringes per Um, 60 uh is gonna win it for no like seriously though like there's a lot of things that the league does and you watch it and you're like yeah, I'm like it's like I'm watching an early episode of The Office. Yeah, where I'm like, yeah. I I I don't want to look a, like I have to look away, but I don't want to. It's cringe. It's awkward. Or I don't know, yeah. take your pick. King of Queens, early episode mm. of The Office. Like that's the that's the feeling I get sometimes. Mm. Uh, last question for you, because uh, our buddy Frank Cervelli has done a big deep dive into Chris Tanif and his trade value and and um, his game and all of that. How, um, if you're the Canucks, would you be interested and how confident would you be that Tanif can be healthy through the rest of this season I would, and through yes. a postseason? I would, I would be very interested because like we just kind of talked about the Canucks have caught this lightning in a bottle. So why not, why not really go for it? Right. In a sense that you bring in a piece that really helps you. Um, and, what did Frank say was the cost? Like, what what was his feelings on that? Well, there were three different, um, there were three different, uh, four actually, different defense trades mentioned. Um, in some cases, you go got to go back to 2016, where Chris Russell went to Calgary for a conditional second, and a couple of B to C level prospects. Brent Kulak went to Edmonton a couple of years ago from Montreal for a second round pick, a seventh and a hope bet prospect. And then there was Josh Manson to Colorado from Anaheim, Drew Hellison, who was probably a B-level prospect in the second round pick. And then the last one was uh, Giordano to Toronto with Blackwell for two second round picks and a third. So that gives you sort of a range. 
Okay, oh, so so I went on Jay's Jay Onright's show a little while back. This was before, uh, right after the Zadorov trade, and we were talking about you know like if Toronto wanted to bring in Chris Tanev, like what's what's that going to cost? And we went through the whole thing, uh, kind of based on if, if the Leafs were trying to do it because they were the the team at the time that was you know uh, everyone was connecting. They need the defensive help, and some moron got my email address some some idiot in calgary got my email address and said you know you don't know what you're talking about because you know chris tanev i can't remember what we said it was going to cost it was going to be like a pick or two picks you know it was going to be two picks basically i think that's what we said at the time and it's like how dare you insinuate it's not going to be a first round pick and it's got to be a high-end prospect i'm like he's a really good player he's going to help a team he's like also 34 and he carries mm-hmm. a larger cap hit. So there's, there's that as well. Um, and I, I saw on the weekend, it was reported that Ottawa potentially has some interest in, in Chris Tanev and that would be more of a, a longer term thing. But you think about putting Chris Tanev in into Vancouver where, okay, he might not even have to play on the first pair, but he could, if you, if you wanted him to, he doesn't have to play a ridiculous amount of minutes because there's more good players on the back end than when he was here. So when it comes to that that injury risk, those two things help mitigate that. So there's a better chance that you're putting him in, A, a position to stay healthy, but B, a position where you get into the playoffs and you didn't have to run, you know, 34-year-old Chris Tanev, who's a really good player, he's in really good shape, all that kind of stuff, but, you know, he's, he's been injured. Um, you don't have to run him into the ground and you get the best out of him at the right time. So it makes sense on a, on a lot of levels. Sorry. I was so pissed when I got, I'm like, how did this moron get my email address in Calgary? But yeah, there we you go. Survived. It's good. Yep. Yeah. Uh, my dude, thank you for this on a Monday. No less. We will catch up next week. Enjoy all-star festivities. Until I will then. be, I'll be staying far away. I don't mm. need the traffic. I don't want to pay for parking. I don't want the crowds. I will be tucked away at home. Thank you though. Watching from afar. 80-year-old Frank Corrado here with Sakarison <laughs> Price. Stay away from the morons. That's right. Yeah. Enjoy and with your popcorn at your home. That's right. <laughs>some price from Wall Center presentation, Applewood Auto Group. Applewood Ford is in Port Hardy, and they've got that truck that you just know does the job. The F-150, the legendary F-150, a $5,000 rebate right now, plus $1,500 bonus for eligible owners. Check it all out at Applewood Ford in Port Hardy. It's all good at Applewood. Poll question today asking you, is this year's edition of the Canucks better than the 2011 team? Yes or no? You can vote at Sikerson Price on Twitter and YouTube. Let's get into some hashtags, the best and worst of Twitter.com. Uh, I'm going to start with Frank Saravelli at Frank underscore Saravelli. Surprised to see Zach Cassian make a comeback. He has joined Sparta Praha in Czechia. Yes, the former Canucks power forward who announced his retirement just before this season has got the itch again and decided he's going to lace him back up. And uh, can you imagine the poor undersized Czechia defenseman? <laughs> you see big Zach coming like a freight train on the four check. 
it's uh, it's a little interesting because like when did he announce the retirement? And just before the season, yeah. Like it's like it, so. This is a quick about face, but hey, the it is a really, really, really uh, unique dynamic for the professional athlete when they hang it up because, of course, you're talking about people typically in their 30s who are retiring for something. And then secondly, there is just not a lot out there in recreational or professional life that can imitate the competitiveness, the fire, and everything you get from playing in the National Hockey League or in one of the big professional sports leagues. So, no. yeah, I, I'm I'm not all that surprised. The fact that he's starting, though, in the Czech October League. October is when he announced it, Blake. So. The fact that he started in the Czech League leads me to believe he's uh, he's pretty far away from making a comeback in the National Hockey League. That's a, that's a long way. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think we'll see him in the NHL again, if that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at Golf Central, Terrell Hatton to live and Team Rom, question mark, according to a report by The Telegraph, it's a done deal. Uh, it's been since confirmed, and it's, uh, you know, again, it's slipping away here from the PGA Tour just a little bit. Yeah. More of the same of what we talked about. Everybody's just trying to get theirs before an inevitable merger does occur. Um, but it is getting harder, and the, and the leaderboards on some of these early season events for the PGA Tour have not been good. Uh, did you know Mathieu Pavon? Nope. Who, I mean, I've seen the name once or twice. Yeah, but. And became the first Frenchman to win on the PGA Tour. And congratulations. And made some gutty, gutty shots uh, shots and putts at the end of the Saturday final round at Torrey Pines of the Farmers Insurance Open. But like, look at the field that entered that event and look at where the leaderboard was in the yeah. final round. Now, I'll say this. Going back look to at the four guys who have won this year on the PGA Tour. They're not exactly household names, which... Look, if any of them is a star is born scenario, then so be it. I'm interested to watch their progress, but but we're talking one offs. If you want to sort of put a feather in the hat of the PGA Tour for stories and format, did you know that Nick Dunlap's win a week ago at the Amex drew thirty seven percent more audience in the final round than John Rahm's win the year oh, previous? Really? Okay, and it was the best. Uh, rating for the that event's final round since 2019. So storyline does matter, and people do like this format better than lives, right? And that's going to be the 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 interesting battle. At NHL Watcher Friedman Elliott on a potential Monaghan New York Rangers deal. This is according to the 32 Thoughts podcast. The whole Jeff Gordon and Rangers dynamic, let's just say they are not on each other's Christmas card list. Let's just go with it. So that complicates the deal there. But that is the kind of player they're going to be looking for. Look, we talked about it last week with Monaghan. There is going to be a competitive marketplace for him because there are not many deadline centers available, let alone rentals that are on affordable contracts. So... I'm not surprised to hear that. I would suspect you're going to start to hear more and more teams tied to Sean Monaghan here. And a reminder, uh, the insiders seem to think, writ large, that Monaghan may well be the first domino to drop here for trade deadline, a combination of Montreal knowing they're out of it, a combination of making sure not wanting to get Sean Monaghan hurt again, 
before they reap the return. And, um, you know, the fact that he's amongst the most uh, easy to slide into your lineup players, both from a fit and from a contractual and cost point of view. So listen for that name around NHL All-Star Weekend, and we'll see if the Canucks and Jim Rutherford, who's typically been an early mover, are are going to uh, be true to form here and be amongst the ones that set the market prior to the March 8th trade deadline. The Canucks only have one month of hockey games left before the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. But they don't get going again until the 6th, and it's the 8th for the deadline. So one month of hockey left, even though we've got like six weeks till the deadline itself. Uh, at Magic Johnson. Oh. What's going on in the NBA? The what league is, is on, on fire with another dominant performance. This time, Luka Doncic, 73 points. Wow, congrats to Luka on his amazing 73.10 rebound game tonight, leading his Mavericks to a 148-143 <laughs> win against the Hawks. Two quotes I want to read. One is from Troy Young. Quote, he was hot. He was going. Shit, we were trying everything. Were you, though, Trey Young? Um, and then another one from Stephen A. Smith. Quote, but the fans didn't want what we saw last night in Atlanta. That was a disgrace. Did you see how they played defense last night? End quote. So there's the spectrum on what the NBA is right now. Magic, you know, extolling it, although Magic pretty much extols anything. Um, Stephen A. always at the other end of the spectrum and finding fault with something. Uh, but does he have a point? Do you do people like 148 um, versus uh, over uh, 148 to 143? Um, that's too much for me. The perfect NBA game is one twenty to one twelve. Fair enough. That's the perfect game. We're picking nits. Mag- that's not picking nits. That's oh. like forty five points off the board. Uh, Magic, the king of the obvious, yes. on Twitter. Yeah, Just read the tweets in his voice too, like they all work. Yeah. Basketball Phil mentioned to me he thinks someone's going to get a hundred here. He thinks Wilt is in jeopardy. As we go forward in this higher and higher scoring age of the NBA. I heard Huff and Bruff talking about this too. The good point here is like that's 73 points. To get to 100 is another spectacular game's worth of points. That's it. Like it's, if it's seven points away, yes. If it's 80, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I'm still having trouble with 100. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because. 70 to well, first of all, 70s, you know, used to be like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Mm-hmm. Never saw them. And, uh, you know, Kobe at 81. Boy, I, I'm having trouble finding another 19 points or 20 points or 27 points, as you say. But if, I, if I'm going to imagine it happening, uh, Victor Wambanyama could be that guy. Oh. In a couple of years' time. Although you sort of need the three-point shot in your arsenal, although, although I know one of the guys three. last week um, was not uh, uh, did not rely on the yeah, three-point exactly. shot. At Blue Jays, we are saddened to learn of the passing of former Blue Jays manager Jimmy Williams. His impact on our organization will forever be remembered. Our hearts go out to Jimmy's family and friends during this difficult time. Yes, 81 years old. He was the skipper of the Blue Jays after Bobby Cox when they made their first playoff appearance in 85. And prior to Cito Gasson, he was the guy that they fired to shake things up and Cito took over and the rest was history. Um, he, uh, first of all, known as Jimmy 1M because he spelled Jimmy with 1M. 
uh, was like his Jimey. mentor. Yes. Yeah, some call him Jimey. Don't call me Jimey. Uh, was a lot like his mentor, Bobby Cox. He could be fiery. He could be ornery. Uh, some really good arguments with umpires over the years with Jimmy Williams. Maybe not quite the Earl Weaver, Lou Pinella level, but he was the next year down in terms of guys who could get out there, red face, bulging veins in the neck. Also, he used to argue with managers with both his hands tucked in his back pockets yes. and his chin out leaning at the guy. And then the other thing that was noteworthy about him, and guys like guys like Don Chevrier and Tony Kubek, who used to do the um, Blue Jays games on television na nationally, would always mention this. Blake, he spoke fluent Spanish. California guy. He spoke fluent Spanish. And, of course, back then, baseball organizations didn't have the huge amount of people working for them that you see now. So having a big league manager who could communicate perfectly with the Spanish speaking players was viewed as like a teaching and coaching advantage. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the reasons why typically amongst your manager, bench coach, pitching coach, uh, hitting coach, and then bullpen catcher. And we didn't have the same number of coaches back then either. You would look for a guy who could speak Spanish so that you could get through to all the Dominican players and Venezuelan players and Puerto Rican players. And, of course, at that time, Blake, the Blue Jays had that Dominican pipeline going with George Bell and Tony Fernandez and Alfredo Griffin and all those guys who came up and starred. So, yeah, Restes, he was quite a character um, of, uh, of the sport, of his position. And uh, for a lot of Blue Jays fans, he would have been the guy. Because remember, Cox got to the playoffs and then left. To Atlanta, so he would have been the guy who was at the uh, front end of competitiveness for that franchise. In advance, he, his behavior, his look, his vibe was is like a baseball manager meme, right? Like he's for sure. like he is it. If you look it up, if you order it from Central Casting, it comes out as Jimmy Williams, absolutely, pretty much, absolutely. At br underscore open ice, Dylan Holloway's gloves, Josh Anderson's stick, Corey Perry going with borrowed gear setup in Edmonton, um, only in the social media and. You know, 4K world is this possible? But the eagle-eyed hockey fans were able to pick up Dylan Holloway's name stitched into the gloves of of Corey Perry, and then identifiably uh, see that it was not his stick either. Josh Anderson's stick clearly didn't get the shipment of sticks in time. Clearly wasn't able to get the oiler training staff to stitch his name into a pair of gloves in time. So. Uh, big borrow steel in your Oilers debut. And that's hashtags for today. <whistles> Joined now by rink-wide chef Patterson, our Knox reporter who covered the victory over the Columbus Blue Jackets on Saturday. We were sitting here talking amongst the most unlikely victories of the season. One of the better ones, given the depths from which they came to win that one, Jeff? Well, it was a wild hockey game. I mean, it's the Columbus Blue Jackets, so I don't think that uh, there's ever a guarantee when they've got a lead. Uh, they're brutal. Uh, and they went to Seattle and lost, and they're not going to win a whole lot of games the rest of the way. So I think there was always that in the back of the minds of the Vancouver Canucks. But uh, the Canucks were dominant in the first period. 
and didn't have anything to show for it. And I think they, I mean, this is just my sort of assumptions that they thought it was going to be easy. Maybe they were just waiting for a power play. Then they got the power play and it blew up in their face. And at that point it started to spiral out of control. But, you know, for all of Rick Tockett's talking points of habits and staples and everything else, like they got away from all of that in the second period. And before they knew it, they're down four to one. And I don't care if it's the Blue Jackets, like it's the NHL and spotting your opponent for one lead isn't, uh, you know, the blueprint for success. But I think of all the things of this homestand, guys, the fact that the power play has come back and back in a big way. It won them the game against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And there were some real parallels to the consecutive Saturday games. The fact that best players ultimately rose to the occasion when the chips were down and they pulled out a victory after sagging against the Leafs. Now, they didn't have a 3-0 lead against Columbus, but what a weird homestand. Like, you know, five games, not a convincing win amongst them, and yet they pick up nine of ten points. And so, you know, we're at that point sort of where do you carve them because they've raised the expectations and the standards, or do you salute them and think even when they don't have their good stuff, they're still able to get nine of a possible ten points. So we've got the all-star break to sort of <laughs> grapple with, with that question, I suppose, but... Uh, they weren't tidy, and when you think about the games against Chicago and Arizona, both low-scoring, dull affairs, but they were able to grind those out. And then we talked about the Toronto game, the St. Louis game, ultimately the one that they lost, and then Columbus the other night. And so many good storylines in that Columbus game with Brock Besser, the hat trick, and the 30-goal mark, and Elias Pettersson after uh, the coach called him out a little bit uh, to you know come through with the winner ultimately, uh, and best players stepping up for them. So. Uh, yeah, improbable anytime you're down four to one, but I do think it helped that they were playing a team that just had no idea how to defend a lead. How much is it, of it is just the break is there? They know the break is there. And and hey, it can get a lot worse when you have that mindset of the break's coming. I got one foot sort of into the break. Um, so in that regard, again, salute that they get nine of 10 points with that mindset. But um, should we expect them to be more on task when they get back to back to it on the other side? Well, they're going to have to be. Uh, the And it's not quite the second half, but out of the All-Star break, you know, a five-game road trip that starts with Carolina and Boston, like that'll get your attention right away. And then back-to-back early starts on the weekend in Detroit and Washington. And we know that uh, the matinee games haven't always brought out the best in the Vancouver Canucks. So uh, there's all those big Western Conference matchups that still await them. And I think coming out of the break, uh, the guys that are going to the All-Star game, yeah, it's not a full 10 days for them, but the rest of the crew, hopefully they're, getting a little sunshine and some R&R because, uh, yeah, there's lots of heavy lifting ahead here. And that's, again, what made Saturday so strange was because I thought, and all the talk of the morning skate was about focus and, you know, professionalism for one more game. And then they came out, they didn't let Columbus touch the puck in the opening period. And so I actually, I thought, all right, you know, they took the coach's uh, words to heart here, but they didn't score. And then when they gave up the shorthanded goal and a few minutes after that, now it's, you know, two nothing game. So, they were good in the first period, but they didn't capitalize on their opportunities. And that's what forced them ultimately to, you know, scramble in that third period. And they were aided uh, repeatedly by the fact that Columbus wasn't learning. You know, maybe don't take penalties. If the Canucks are going to torch on the power play, show a little discipline and stay out of the penalty box. But uh, whatever the case, the Canucks got power plays and made them count. And uh, as I said, uh, power play goes seven for 18 on the homestand including three the other night. So that's a good sign going into the break is that this power play that won them a bunch of games early kind of went dormant for a while, but uh, it did come back to life here 
over the span of this five-game homestand. We heard the clips from Brock earlier, Jeff, but sitting there in front of him, do you think it was more joy or more relief that he got <laughs> to 30 goals? I, I would say it, it should be more joy. I mean, it's worth celebrating the first time ever, and to do it with 33 games remaining, guys, like 40 is absolutely in his crosshairs, and it should be his target. 50, he would have to get on another heater. But, I mean, three hat-tricks already, including a four-goal game. And, you know, this guy scores in bunches. So, good on him. I think, uh, you know, there's an accomplishment there. I think his teammates were excited for him, the way that he did it uh, in that fashion, to score three and to be a part of a a stirring comeback victory. You know, again, that kind of stuff uh, writes itself. And and we've always been watching Brock Besser. And he got to 29 in his rookie season – but only played 62 games. Like he was a, a natch to get to 30 that first year if he had stayed healthy, but we know that injuries have been part of his story. And so uh, even this year, that's been it, that he's been available every night out and that he's, you know, he had gone six without scoring. That's the longest stretch that he had gone prior to the hat trick the other night. So for the most part, he's been, you know, really consistent. And I think the other night was another indication of we still, I think a lot of us, Think of him as this wrist shot score from distance. And yet you saw the goals the other night, all there on the top of the blue paint, uh, putting himself in position, whether it's a rebound, whether it's a deflection. Uh, it is a skill to get to those areas. Andre Kuzmenko did it a ton last year. He was rewarded. And Brock Besser sort of has scored a bunch of those Kuzmenko-style goals this time around. So uh, it's unfortunate for Kuzmenko. He's not getting his, but uh, Brock Besser up to 30 and counting. And as I said, I mean, with 33 games to go, if he stays available and healthy, then absolutely we should be talking about a 40-goal Brock Besser. And as much as we talked about him coming back in better shape and having a different summer regiment at the request of Rick Tockett than we had seen previously, we make so much about his foot speed, guys, and I'm not necessarily sure, as Jeff just outlined, that that has made the difference. I think it might just be just the strength to be able to play in that area because right from the jump, Jeff, this year, He's either been scoring goals in that neck of the woods or he's been a very effective screener getting in the eye, uh, the sight lines of goaltenders. So he deserves yeah, and, a lot and of plaudits. He's never going to be a burner, but his first goal the other night, uh, he recognizes, you know, straight to the front of the net. And JT Miller puts that pass on his tape. And that was a, a cool goal as well. So, you know, three different goals. And that's kind of in the story of Brock Besser's season. And you don't get to 30 without a variety and scoring in different ways. But it was all there on display uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you for the most part that he's put himself in position. There's a price to be paid to stand your ground. You know, if you're on the penalty kill, you're usually going up against the behemoths on the other side that, uh, you know, they they know that they can test the limits of the officiating and see what you get away with. So whether it's the back of your legs, their cross check to the back, all that kind of stuff, you got to pay a price in there. And, you know, I'm not always sure that I believe that Brock Besser had that in his DNA, a willingness to to get there and stay there. But uh, boy, he's done a nice job of it. And, and he's been rewarded. They may have discovered a new top six forward in Pew Suter, who has not looked out of place at all. Good high skill level there. Uh, but the Pedersen line, if he's going to be with McCabe and somebody else, um, you know, has, he, does this all-star break present itself an opportunity for management to dig in deep on that file. Um, have we reached the end of the line with that trio in terms of any expectation that they're going to be producing offense for the Canucks? Sort of feels that way, which is incredible to speak about a 39 goal scorer and a guy that has been a 20 goal scorer and in limited action in his time in the National Hockey League. And for Mikheyev, like we all remarked, 
you know, coming off the knee injury, he jumped in midstream without a training camp and, you know, held up his own, got off to a nice start here. And you thought the possibilities are endless. That's the wildest thing in all of this. And I almost feel like I've turned my attention. I'm kind of done with the Kuzmenko saga. Mm -hmm. And now looking at Mikheyev, who, you know, outside of the lotto lines time together, has played with Elias Pedersen. He's played with a, a hundred point guy, the best playmaker on this team, at least the best playmaking forward on this team, and has just gone ice cold, 17 without a goal and one in 21. And so you've got one guy on one side making five and a half and the other guy that's bumping up against five million bucks. Like that's a lot of dough sunk into two wingers that just can't sniff a scoring chance right now. And uh, we've talked about the fact that, you know, they need more from Elias Pedersen, but it's got to be a two-way street here. So you're right. I mean, it just continues to be, if you go lotto line and it exposes weaknesses elsewhere, if you take Pia Suter and put him up, then you're opening up some gaps uh, elsewhere in this lineup. And so it just feels like all roads lead back to, yes, they need uh, they need another scoring forward, uh, whether it's to help Elias Pedersen, whether it's to jump on that power play, uh, whatever the case, Pia Suter, to his credit, uh, I mean, this guy has just been a seamless fit wherever they've asked him to play. Uh, he plays hard. He plays smart. He's been productive. There's enough offense in his game that, uh, you know, he doesn't stand out on a power play that uh, has all of these all-stars on it. So, yeah, it's going to be curious to see what management does ultimately and, you know, what does it do. Uh, they're still one of the highest scoring teams in the National Hockey League, and yet the conversations all sort of track back to this idea that they they definitely need one more legitimate top six forward, I think, to to make some real noise down the stretch and into the playoffs. If you had to bet of the Canucks playing participants at the All-Star game, who do you think is going to take it most seriously and treat it most competitively? I would say Quinn Hughes. I think there's the brother aspect. I think it's just impossible for him to lace up his skates without uh, feeling some degree of competition. And maybe that just speaks to being raised in a household with three guys that have all made it to the National Hockey League. You know, for JT Miller, it's a great reward and something that he's never been through in his career. And so, you know, I mean, his motor runs hot, but I, I don't know. Like I was trying to think, you know, will he be comfortable in that setting? He doesn't strike me as a, a guy that's going to Toronto to make a bunch of friends. That's just not sort of who he is. Uh, Elias Pettersson, I think there's probably an element of dread just uh, to get to the game itself, get through the gauntlet that is that media day and having to answer a, a bunch of questions. And Brock's been there and done there, and I'm sure done that, and I'm sure he's appreciative. And obviously, the last time uh, he was at the All Star Weekend, he was the star of the weekend and came home with the MVP and everything else. And you got Thatcher Demko. Uh, you know, there's pride involved for the goaltenders there. They don't want to get shown up by the best in the business. And uh, you know, but I, I just think. That's sort of who Quinn Hughes is. And if he's a captain in there, as he is with the Vancouver Canucks, I mean, I think he'll take that responsibly. And yeah. we'll see if the brothers play together or if they're on opposite sides. And if they're on opposite sides, maybe that even heightens sort of that competitive drive between, uh, or is Jack even playing? Jack's not playing. He's going to be playing, there. Right. He's going to be there as a captain, but he's not right. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. Uh, a, as the captain of the Canucks to serve notice that we're coming, but also, um, you know, he's got a pretty good Derby with Kale McCarr for the defense scoring yeah. late. And everyone's yeah. talking about that as well with JT. It's hard to be the alpha in that room, <laughs> you know? No, no, but honestly, it's hard to like walk into a room with Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid and, you know, be the loud boisterous guy that 
we know him to be. To, so to that note, to some degree, uh, and the Columbus Blue Jackets aren't a playoff team. So in in that regard, Saturday was not a playoff test. But coming from behind and showing some some pushback and some fight and some clawing, that's kind of playoffy at least for the for the Vancouver. Are they starting to show that they could be a good playoff team? Uh, you know, with wins over Toronto and and the Rangers, all everything that happened on the road trip. Are we starting to think that? You know, this isn't just a lightweight scoring team that they could grind and, and battle. Well, I, I do think that that's one of the things that's impressed me this year is that they have found a bunch of different ways to win games. Now, they have led in so many that I do think there's some value in both the St. Louis game and then the Columbus game where they fell behind and had to claw back and got a single point against St. Louis and ultimately got both points against the Blue Jackets. And so if you're Rick Tockett, like, I don't think you want your team as much as you want them to get out in front and lead like you don't want it to be an easy path to the playoffs so i do think that you know this wasn't a ton of adversity as you point out you're playing the columbus blue jackets but you know regardless of the opponent just the game state and the situation that you're down uh you know you're not getting frustrated you're sticking with it uh, drawing penalties and then making them count so i think there's some value in that regard uh, i i'm just so excited about what's to come out of the break and we mentioned the five game road trip i think that's going to be tough eight of the ten out of the break or out on the road and then just a whack of home cooking obviously including that nine game homestand through the month of march but so many big western conference games that they're not going to go more than three or four games ever over the remaining 33 where they're not facing a top 10 or even a top five opponent and I think for the fans, that's terrific. For us, it's terrific. And I think for the team and the coaching staff, I mean, they're going to continue to get these measuring sticks and get a sense of who they are, where they are, where do they stack up, where do they fall short. And, you know, what a great time to take all of those learnings before they ultimately get to the playoffs. Because they're going to the playoffs with 71 mm -hmm. points at the All-Star break. They're playing playoff hockey this year. And, you know, that's just an exciting, exciting uh, prospect, I think, for anybody that's been around this team for for a while now. All right. Well, last question, then answer uh, the poll. They better than the 2011 team, Jeff? I still hold that 2011 team in such high regard. There really wasn't a weakness, and I know they fell short against the Bruins, but playoffs is all about matchups and attrition, and there were reasons that we don't have to revisit here. But just, I mean, that was the best team in the NHL uh, they won the President's Trophy for what that's worth. They were the best team in the regular season. And, yeah, I mean, their offense dried up, and obviously a few too many pucks got past Roberto Luongo. But just I think in the composition of that roster, from star power to the next level of really good players to the role players they had and the ones that they added at the trade deadline, that defense core, when healthy, was solid and stacked. It didn't have the star power of a Quinn Hughes, and that's a differentiator, obviously, for this group. But I just think, like, we talked more than a decade later of that 2011 team being one of the best teams ever not to win the Stanley Cup. If this group falls short, I don't think we'll be saying that about these no. Vancouver Canucks. They've got high, high-end talent. They've got a power play that can torture you. They've got Quinn Hughes. But as we sit here and as we've just covered over the last 10 minutes, there are still holes up front. And... You know, the other night against Columbus, Nikita Zadorov is on a pairing with Noah Juleson. That leaves Ian Cole and Tyler Myers essentially as your three and four. And as much as those guys have given the Canucks this year, when you match up against a top team and have to beat them four out of seven, 
you know, is that what you want on your second pairing of defense? Now, Carson Soucy hopefully gets back and allows them to configure the pieces uh, the way that they think optimizes their defense. But yeah, I, I think there are questions up front of the top six, and I still think there are questions about uh, the defense core. And then, of course, that 2011 team, I mean, it was third time lucky against Chicago. They were battle-tested and hardened. And for a lot of these guys, uh, you know, their most recent playoff experience was in the middle of the summer, in the bubble, in front of nobody. Like, it was so bizarre that a lot of these guys truly haven't tasted Stanley Cup playoffs going into hostile buildings and having to, you know, overcome crowds as much as the opponents and all those types of things. So I'm looking forward to all of that for this group. But no, I, I'm voting 2011. My heart and my head are both with that 2011 team. Just update them because Ranko, I'm not going dark this week, uh, Jeff, although you'll be away uh, as the Canucks are on their break. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to put together a little rink-wide roundtable with Ron Gaffar and David Quadrelli, who have uh, sat in over the course of uh, the first bunch of games here this season. Uh, we're going to kick around a little bit of a rink-wide roundtable, uh, you know, the first 49 games and what's to come for the Vancouver Canucks. And uh, yeah, we just uh, want to keep the hockey talk going. There's uh, a lot to get to with this club. So uh, yeah, a special edition of Rink-Wide that uh, will be released on Thursday morning of this week, I believe. Marvelous stuff. Enjoy the break, Jeff. Thanks for this. We'll catch up next week. All right, guys. Thank you. Sakara some price from Wall Center presentation, Applewood Auto Group. You can text us 778-402-9680. It's the Great Clips text message inbox. Great Clips. It's going to be great. This is a Great Clips last week. I do. Got to that head haircut. Yeah. More and more gray on the sides each and every time. That happens. Not Great Clips' fault. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, you have some soccer you want to get to here with the Caps? Uh, yeah, well, at MLS Network, the Vancouver Whitecaps submitted an offer to free agent defender Bjorn Inge Utvik. The 27-year-old Norwegian center back departed Sarpsborg mm. after appearing 130 times over five years. Utvik is considering the offer and is expected to make a decision soon. Um, the eagle eyes of Whitecap Nation, though, have picked up on the fact that Brian White has already followed Utvik. Well, as of yesterday on Instagram, when you get a name like that as the play-by-play guy, would you just assume? We'll go with Utvik, yeah, <laughs> okay. for the most part. Uh, interesting player, uh, not a towering presence, but he's a he's a nice physical specimen as a center. Like you would mm-hmm. think, this is depth behind Veselinovic, but it allows them to maybe go into a two-center back system uh, if they want to play four at the back at any point, and then finally have a true true center back alongside Veselinovic. So um, they needed depth there. They have never had really depth behind or alongside Veselinovic. And uh, this could be the guy. He's, uh, he's played at the Norwegian Elite League um, basically his entire career. So, And, of course, uh, the Whitecaps are a little closer to playing than you may think here, everybody. A week away. Wednesday, February 7th, they begin this Champions League tie with Tigress, and they will do so at Starlight in Langford. Yeah, with, uh, you know, Atacubis and Ahmed are probably unavailable for that game um, with Dings. Um, so This that, is before the return leg in Mexico on Valentine's Day, yeah. the 14th. And then, of course, we will uh, 
get ready for regular season play in MLS March 2nd at BC Place against Charlotte in the season and home opener. Wow, our uh, poll question on Friday certainly got some activity. It's mm-hmm. been a while since we've had a poll question do more than 5,000 votes, but here we are. Who's the better team right now, the Canucks or Oilers? 5,327 people weighed in. I think a lot of that had to do with our friends and colleagues at the Nation Network and Oilers Nation becoming aware of this poll. Shout out Jay and Jared and everybody else who propagated amongst the Northern Alberta faithful. Oilers win the poll with 55%. I got to say, there were a lot of Canucks fans in the comments ceding this territory to Edmonton which I was a little surprised at. Um, not they, Nick. They were they were reading into it literally right, right now. now. Yeah. And, of course, Edmonton on this long winning streak. In fact, what, one game away, right? One game away. From tying the all-time winning streak. And the Golden Knights first out of the break for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick says this team, uh, the team has... The team that has 12 more points and is outscoring the other team 18-6 head-to-head with a 3-0 record. That's the better team right now. Kyle says, I don't care who they have played, really. 15-0 and now 16-0. And 23-3 and is amazing. Reverse teams, I guarantee that all of us Canucks fans would be saying what Oilers fans are saying. Other than for rivalry reasons, why can't both just be damn good? Yeah, we saw a lot of that as well. Well, doesn't really matter right now. It matters in the spring. Vanley, at this point, the standings don't matter. I don't need another President's Trophy followed by a first-round exit to an eventual cup winner. The playoffs will decide who the better team is or was. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the playoffs are, are the be-all and end-all. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think for a market like Vancouver's, it has been so starved of winning, I, I think they'll oh. uh, they'll take any and all accolades. Tracking the progress is a lot of fun. Dude. Yeah. Absolutely. What do, you, what do you think uh, happened on YouTube? 2,000 votes. Uh, Pro-Canuck audience. Canucks, 55%. Yeah. 66%. Okay. Uh, two errors and omissions from Friday's program that caught my ear. Uh, Frank Cervelli mistakenly said Ryan O'Reilly when he was meant Andrew Kopp. We were talking about centermen to be traded at the deadline. He just conflated those trades at one point. And then I mentioned that I sure hope that the National Hockey League and its member clubs have the no-trade lists all sorted, mentioning the matter with uh, the Senators and Anaheim Ducks a couple of years back if Jenny Dodonoff was the player with whom uh, was traded despite having a team on his no-trade list, and the Ottawa Senators were later punished retroactively for that for not respecting the no trade list but you know that's something that could be i don't know just thinking out loud here maybe held at a body with the NHL within the NHL that's called central maybe registry. they should have a central registry where all maybe trades are go through registry that and then that they, the central registry could say no you no, can't actually, do that trade this guy has your team on a no trade list so yeah. unless we're told otherwise we can't process that trade but you know in a league where they're making up referees rules as they go along you know that tracks that way bets of the daytime and uh i'm looking at the skills competition Pedersen's 10 to 1. 
Giddy up for to win it. To win it all. To win it all. Oh. Giddy up. Give me a, a rooting interest here. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. Uh, Afcon has been bringing everybody <laughs> to the uh, pitch. So much fun, apparently. I haven't watched any of the games, but um, everybody's been raving about the craziness of the African Cup of Nations uh, soccer tournament, their version of Euro, if you will. Um, Morocco versus South Africa tomorrow. We know Morocco are the darlings, but you're still getting a buck sixty on a win. Um, that's not a bad little tax there for what should be a tap-in for Morocco. So 160 on Morocco tomorrow versus South Africa. I have been watching a little bit of um, FA Cup. Yes, well, uh, yeah. Did you see Maidsy, is it? Itty-bitty Maidstone. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big win over Ipswich. A non-league side beats Ipswich 2-1, and then I watched a little bit of this Newport man. Newport had, man, you scared there for a moment as well. So love those stories from the FA Cup where minnows put with giants and their fighting chance. On your Betway bets of the day, must be 19-plus to play. Please play responsibly. Thanks for listening, everybody. A reminder to subscribe to us, Canucks Conversation, Rinkwide, wherever you get your podcast. We're live on YouTube daily, other than Tuesday through Thursday this week, taking some time. Of course, follow on social, Twitter, Insta, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube, and support those community sponsors you hear us talking about. Keep it local. Okay, good.